Welcome to the Shield Your Business from Chaos podcast, where there's no building, no people, no third-party suppliers, and no systems all combined to create Chaos the Dragon, which is battled by King Phoenix and his shield. Hi, I'm Roswita Firth. Today's podcast is in conjunction with Kingsbridge BCP, our business continuity planning tool. Kingsbridge has been in business since 1983 and um, can help uh, businesses credit unions with all of their planning needs. I've been in the business continuity field for about 20, 23 years now, I think, um, working for large energy companies, large financial institutions, and I now do some consulting. With me today is James Knox, who's got probably about as much experience in the field as I do, I think. And um, I'll let you say a little bit more about your background and career. Thanks for joining us today, James. Well, thank you very much for having me. And yeah, 23 years formally. Now I say formally because I used to be a Boy Scout and that uh, attitude of always be prepared has followed me throughout my life. Mm -hmm. uh you know when i was a crab fisherman you know our boat sank i was the one that had a personal eperb which is why the coast guard found the four of us that survived wow. out of 28 and i've taken that always be prepared uh attitude and approach at everything i've done and it naturally fit for what i do uh as a living for the last 23 plus years wow that sounds like a really <laughs> traumatic event uh, it's life. <laughs> it is. Wow. Um, so what industries have you worked in? Well, uh, for what I do now, you know, BC, um, DR, uh, I've worked in, uh, both energy, uh, petrochemical, you know, refining of, uh, of petrochemical products, uh, supply chain, IT, and also financial. And I've kind of floated back around through uh, those industries. They all have their own uniqueness. Um, some are have certain blessings uh, over others, but uh, I think really to be a good expert in our area, uh, when you're in just one field, that's great, but you kind of get this, it's very easy to get kind of this blinder view. And so I've really uh, enjoyed uh, the fact that I've had this multi-industry uh, perspective and been able to pull what I've learned in one and how we apply uh, our practices there into another and kind of uh, mature the process to a uh, very successful working model. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because for the most part, we've both worked in the same or similar industries, um, because I've also done quite a bit in IT. Um, most of the time that I've been a business continuity manager or analyst in the early days was actually in an organization that did something else, but we reported up through IT, especially in the earlier days. Um, and so there was a huge focus on disaster recovery specifically and on systems availability. So um, 
sounds like we have actually quite a lot of similarity in our, our careers in that way. Most definitely. And uh, I think as we go further on, uh, as time moves on, we're learning that all of our businesses are IT businesses. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've had to sit there and, you know, someone's like, hey, well, we make gas. No, you're an IT business that uh, specializes in petroleum products because pretty much there's nothing uh, we can do unless you make handmade products purely, you know, on your own. That doesn't include IT systems. So yeah. that shift in dependency has really brought up the uh, reliance on DR and resiliency far more than uh, probably 20 years ago, mm -hmm. much more uh, emphasis on business continuity, people, facilities, those type of things. Good point. Good point. Now, you mentioned something early on um, about effective programs, um, and I don't remember the exact words that you used, um, but I know when we talked initially mm -hmm. that kind of where your current passion lies is building proactive, not reactive programs. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit more about like how you view that? Sure. Uh, well, that's exactly the topic we wanted to uh, hit upon. Um, over the years, I've learned that um, you can come in and manage a program that exists, but really our programs are uh, a continually maturing process. Uh, it's it's a project and a program all in one. So it's continually maturing and a good program should be able to be uh, uh, predictive of what's to come and adapt mm -hmm. to those and really mature to the level that you can help uh, provide some ROIs and some benefits mm -hmm. in um, for the uh, executive to decide where's the changes we want to um, to make in the future. So you really get to step up at that table and uh, be a resource for mm -hmm. the future of a company uh, rather than sitting there as the insurance policy that we're going to exist. Yes, absolutely. So um, how would you, like what's one of the ways that you help make that happen in your current organization, for example? Well, um, there's uh, dependency modeling is key and understanding where those dollars are. And when you have that, and let's say, you know, you're going to pull in a new DAS, okay, uh, data as a service. Well, mm -hmm. now you can sit here and understand that here's going to be our challenges. Here's how much it's going to save us uh, because you're going to have all your data mapped out ahead of time. And then it's going to pull it in and be able to manage those transitions as data sources change. Uh, and you should be able to come up with the cost analysis based upon that of how much it will save over time as programs mature. But it's always referring to the same DAS system mm -hmm. for where the most current data is. It also can uh, alleviate in the cost of recovery and migration because you'll still have the same reference points um, of where your data is looking to, though the back end or where it's essentially being uh, being pulled from could always change, but it's managed in one source. So now when you're sitting at the table and they're like, hey, we're thinking about going with a DAS system with mm -hmm. that understanding, 
you could sit here and understand, well, currently in the last year, we migrated six systems. We had, you know, 750,000 in man hours to migrate these systems, another $3 million in other support, hardware, and everything else, and show how you're no longer going to be stuck to those large costs. So therefore, it's a good productive choice. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Do you ever encounter resistance or... I, I can't say that. I'm sure you've encountered resistance. Yes. Um, but uh, so I guess in the early stages of trying to to move from a reactive mode to a proactive uh, way of doing business continuity and and protecting the organization better, um, what kinds of resistance have you encountered? I think is a better question to ask. Um, not in my backyard. The NIMBY attitude is one mm -hmm. thing. And hey, that's my area. Uh, people that want to sit here, especially in the IT window. Hey, we have this. You just need to stay and in, in document those DR plans and, and so forth. Um, it's a challenge. However, uh, really, as we're everyone's moving to this resiliency and how can you ensure that your IT systems are adaptive, scalable based upon a need where your supply chain and uh, your BC plans should uh, really start looking at how do we split our loads and workloads so we're not dependent on any one facility mm -hmm. uh, for providing those uh, services. Um, as you start to take these proactive measures, it tends to kind of force and overcome some of those challenges because, okay, you're building the network or the architecture of your day-to-day -day network. So it's adaptable. It's uh, built in regions and multiple cloud platforms, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, and it's scalable. Well, that's really all we're saying. However, um, as we're building our plans for large-scale resilience, um, and you still have to have your DR though, uh, that starts to drive a better resilient architecture mm -hmm. um, from the IT side of things. And likewise, also from uh, being able to make the case from your businesses uh, and your people and facilities. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a little costly to have two data center, two phone centers or two different mm -hmm. offices. Now, if your company is one that has multiple, say it has five offices, one in each time zone of the U.S., mm -hmm. um, you're not having to take as much cost, but it's very easy to start to look at, hey, our day-to-day -day business, we can be running where Eastern uh, time zone, they may be taking calls you know, at 6 a.m. their time as business starts, but they're going to end a lot earlier in the West time zone is going to go a lot later, which expands your overall window. However, if there's an issue, any one of those time zones can pick up the slack or even come back in. So it's a much more, uh, it's a greater design and ability to meet the needs and make uh, the case for having uh, these multiple offices, multiple mm -hmm. uh, supply chains, essentially. Use King Phoenix and Shield with its mapping, its dashboards, its permissioning, 
dependency mapping. And it's automatically redacted plans to shield your business from chaos. KingsbridgeBCP.com. So I've certainly heard the resistance from the IT side. That's very familiar to me. What what kinds of pushback do you get from uh, the business side of things? Is it primarily cost or are there other factors that are brought up in cost training people? That's that's definitely one. But I think COVID actually is a blessing in disguise. Mm -hmm. um, Pre-COVID, everyone, everyone, especially in production, wanted to go just in time. They were just in time. Um, we had people, well, most of your businesses wanted to see butts and seats. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the programs that I've worked to develop, at least from the uh, end user experience, meaning mm -hmm. the employees, you know, to where they're not tied to a single computer, a single environment, mm -hmm. um, proven to be quite beneficial because with COVID, hey, we couldn't all go into the office, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, that started to break down, I think, a lot of these thoughts of, hey, we can't afford to have two offices or, yeah. you know, the resources for IT have been made um, a lot more readily available mm -hmm. because they have to be able to support this changing uh, environment and uh, the ability to work from multiple locations, including home. Um, I think you're going to see a change in design coming up here over the next few years of, mm -hmm. of smaller offices, more spread out. Uh, so if you still have those environments that promote face-to-face -face, um, collaboration, mm -hmm. but uh, it certainly costs a lot less to have a couple of smaller offices than these big, large corporate offices. I think we're also experiencing um, what I've noticed with a lot of companies lately is, you know, they were building new buildings right as COVID start and right through it. And so now they're really trying to justify the cost of those large facilities that they uh, have. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's going to be a hard one to overcome. You know, the workforce of people enjoyed working from home to the for the most part, and they're less inclined to drive in on an everyday basis. So you are seeing these hybrid models come out. Mm -hmm. But I do think um, part of this whole resiliency and proving your bottom line and becoming uh, to where your BCDR programs are feeding into the decisions to be made are going to lead to differences in what that corporate environment office-wise looks to. And that, you know, I hope the direction heads that way. I, there was an article, I think it was Forbes recently, that talked about, um, I think it was a either a big Silicon Valley company or a big financial institution that was pushing back on work from home and getting people back in the office um, on a more permanent basis. And kind of, I think they were allowing maybe one day work from home. And their emphasis was that the collaboration virtually is simply not the same as being in the office in person when you're in um, an environment where a lot of collaboration needs to take place. So I, I am all in favor of keeping the work from home model work remotely. Um, 
I think there's definitely going to be industries that push back on that. And from the great resignation perspective, I kind of think that as much as people are financially able to, they're going to continue to choose work-life balance because they've had a taste of it. Like, I don't think people are going to be willing to give that up unless they have to, um, either because of career ambition or because of financial choices that they make. Would you um, agree? I, I would definitely agree. Um, there are some environments where being face-to-face um, improves that uh, collaborative uh, feeling. And there's some jobs where you just have to be there. I mean, yeah. you know, you can't can't assemble a chip unless you're in a fab, you know, it's just the way it is. Uh, but I definitely think um, there is a lead towards um, those decision makers, those leaders, and even SMEs that have been having to collaborate with people, not only in an office, but teams across the world, we've just taken those skills and shifted it. We're also able to be more readily available for work because we're not tied down to having to commute an hour into a place and then mm-hmm. commute back. Um, so I know personally myself, I'll start my day off at 4.35 in the morning. I'll get in, have a little quiet time where I can shoot some emails off. And then um, you know, I'll do some personal stuff in the morning, get back on, back and forth, walk the dog. And I won't get done till five, six in the evening, Mm -hmm. um, really signing off of work formally. But you're available a lot more. My Mm -hmm. teams, which are available, start on the East Coast all the way to the West Coast. I'm able to adapt and be available for their needs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we're seeing that across the industry that people are understanding. When I'm working from home, Yes, I have to kind of separate my personal life at times by stepping through that door and saying no more, but Mm -hmm. they're also able to be far more available and feel uh, comfortable when they wake up in the middle of the night with a great idea. Hey, it's not a big deal to just go there and pound it out real quick. Good point. And you mentioned global teams and certainly like I was part of a global team across essentially all time zones. Um, it was truly global. It was follow the sun 24 by seven. And, um, you know, this, that was, gosh, that was like 15 years ago. And there was no issue with online collaboration. You know, we used meetings, um, virtual meetings. We used chat throughout the day, um, more so than email, because you could chat with people um, at the end of their workday, the beginning of yours and vice versa and things like that. And it cut down a lot on the email clutter and people were truly like of the mindset that you save email for what email is needed for and, and other things were moved to chat. Um, going back to building proactive programs. Um, I really like talking about the whole work remotely debate, by the way, it's a topic I'm super interested in. Um, but I want to go ahead and, and wrap up. Today, so I wanted to ask. So, if you were going to give advice to a newer BCP professional um, or someone first leading a program, what would be the one best piece of advice that you would give to them for how to build a proactive program? Like, where do they need to start, or what's their your best piece of advice about that? Uh, I think you need to understand what the five-year uh, plan is for the company's direction. Mm-hmm. And then um, 
sit down with those architects and really start asking the what ifs, the what ifs. And um, when understanding that, as you build out your program, uh, start to ask those peering questions of when we start to implement this, how's that going to impact your apps, your area of your program, et cetera, even though it's not necessarily slated, but if you understand the concepts of, hey, we're going to go to a DAS storage system, mm -hmm. what's that going to mean for people? So what questions can I ask now on the AIA application um, uh, impact analysis or the BIA mm -hmm. that can start to pull information that will be useful when we start to look at these new pieces of technology and projects that are coming forth. So that's where it's going to be very beneficial is when you can have an insight on what's to come. So the data that you're collecting in your in your uh, assessments is how is ready. So when they want to pull the trigger, you can come up with the right answers, how the impact's going to be, and mm -hmm. perhaps those cost savings. Good point. Good point. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts on this aspect of business continuity. Um, I, I know that there's lots more that we could talk about. So hopefully you're interested in coming back for I another would. conversation at a later date. I certainly would enjoy that. And I really appreciate your time. Um, so if you enjoyed today's podcast, which hopefully you did with James Knox and myself, Rosquita Firth, go find our Kingsbridge BCP podcast wherever you find your podcast. Thanks for listening and watching today, and we hope to see you again. Thanks again, James. Really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. All right. You have a great rest of your day.